Uh, just before Artie Kendall comes to minister the Word of God this evening, 2 Kings chapter 7, uh, verse 17 onwards, reading from the NIV. Context is lifting of the siege of Samaria through Elisha's supernatural ministry. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, You will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. Thank you, all three of you. <laughs> not necessary. In fact, I told him not even to introduce me so that you wouldn't do that, but it's all right. I'll, I'll get over it. One day, God will clear his name. The most maligned person in the universe is God the Father. But how he will clear his name, don't try to figure it out in advance. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I now ask for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to fall upon every person here in order that their perception that what I say will be heard as you intend cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said nothing that doesn't need to be said overrule every weakness that I have and grant that this will be a life-changing word and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a, a time of extreme famine when there was no food in Samaria. It was so horrible. They were eating donkeys' heads to stay alive. And I hate even to repeat it, but Mothers were eating their own babies. It was horrible. There was no food, and the outlook was bleak because they were in a walled city, couldn't get out, and there was no hope. But right in the middle of that, Elisha speaks and says, 24 hours from now, 24 hours from now, there is going to be so much food that it will be cheap. And the obvious response for many of us, and certainly was from the equi to the king, he said, not possible, not possible. Well, the prophecy of Elisha, we're going to look at tonight, it's one of the most extraordinary. I got to thinking, 
is there more extraordinary prophetic utterances in the Bible than this one? It's, it's amazing. Uh, no one could have made this up. No one could have predicted how it would be fulfilled. I don't think Elisha himself knew how it would be fulfilled. But he just gives a word that he knows is from God. And so it shows how a prophecy is not only often misunderstood, but you cannot figure out how it will be fulfilled. Well, now here's what we have in our series on Elisha. The king of Syria has decided again to attack Israel. You would have thought by now he would stop. We saw how gracious the king of Israel was in giving a banquet for the for the troops of, of, Samaria, of uh, Syria. And it stopped everything for a while. But now he's back at it again. And he takes advantage of the walled city of Samaria. And he laid siege. A siege is a military operation in which enemy forces surround a town, cutting off essential supplies with the aim of compelling those inside to surrender. As I said, amazing that he would do this. Things were going so well. He's the one that sent Naaman to get healed. Now, again, he's attacking Israel. Now, I want us to see several things in this passage. First, I've already referred to it, extreme famine. Here's what we read in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25. We're told there was a great famine in the city. A siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels. By today's standard, we don't know it would be like this then, but just put in your mind 25 pounds. Paying 25 pounds for a donkey's head. Nobody ate donkey's heads. They didn't do that. But they were desperate. And they were paying... Uh, a quarter of a cab of seed pods, uh, that would be pigeon dung. And they were paying a pound for it. That's how desperate they were. Apparently, pigeon dung was used as a sort of seasoning on the food that they could get. But they were running out of food. The situation was so bleak. And so, as I say, people were eating their babies and so here comes a woman, and she says to the king, and she says, help me, help me. And he looked back at her, and he says, look, if the Lord doesn't help you, how can I help you? He lost his temper with her. And it's a case of extreme famine, followed by evil fury. This king was beside himself. He lost his temper. And then he says, what's your problem? What's the matter? And so she says, well, look, this woman and I agreed. Today, we ate my baby. She promised tomorrow that she'd bring hers, and now she's hid the baby, and she's backing out of the deal, and I want you to deal with it. And so in his evil fury, he tore his robes, Went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath was a sackcloth on his body. Now that's the nearest you come to any kind of grief. Because the truth is, they were under judgment of God. And the king knew this. 
He knew exactly what was going on. We're talking about the king of Israel under a covenant with God. Because you can read in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 53, what was happening when people start eating their, the fruit of their womb. It's a sign of judgment. It is what God has done. And it was the moment when he should have called the nation to prayer. He should have said, let's get on our knees. Wouldn't do much good to call a fast because they couldn't eat anyway. But the least he could do is to say, this is a judgment of God. We need to find out what we can do. We need to repent. We get to the bottom of it. That is what they should have done. But instead, what do you suppose he does? He blames Elisha. Of all things, he blames Elisha. And so as soon as this woman said what she did about the baby and, and the, her friend not bringing their baby so they could eat the other baby, the king heard this. He tore his robes and then made a vow. May the God of Israel, may God be with me. May he deal with me, be it ever so severely. If the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. That was his reaction. And so that God was doing this. The purpose of it was to get Israel's attention. It was judgment. But you see, when God sends judgment like this, it means there's hope. When it's forewarned in Scripture why judgment comes, it's a way to drive us to our knees and to say, God, what is it you are trying to teach me? Let me ask you a question. What is God doing now? Trying to get your attention. And you won't listen to anybody. You get advice and you reject it. And you're playing the blame game. The woman comes to the king. She wants him to solve it. The king blames Elisha. No one was willing to say, I need to put things right. There's something wrong with me. And could it be that you are guilty of blaming everybody else? And maybe God is saying, I want you. I'm on your case. This is my way of trying to get your attention. And it may be that through this word, God will speak even to somebody here. Stop pointing the finger. Any marriage on the rocks represented here would be healed by sundown tomorrow if both of you will stop pointing the finger. Instead of blaming everybody for everything, you take no blame to yourself. And so it's a sad day. Evil fury, because Elisha had done so many miracles in the past, what happens is that the king of Israel begins to think that they are entitled to these miracles. This is the curse of our generation, entitlement. Somebody does you a favor, and uh, you expect him to do it again the next week, and you get angry if he doesn't. Sometimes the reason you can't bless people is that they will now expect it forever. A number of years ago, 
at Westminster Chapel, we were doing everything we could to get it right, and we tried to be good to the poor. And I made a decision, I don't think it was a good one, but I made a decision that we should open our doors to the poor and let them come in and eat lunch with us on Sundays. Now, the idea was that they would come and hear the preaching and then come back and eat with us. And it could be an evangelistic outreach. But what happened was they didn't come to the preaching. They'd come with the services over. They felt entitled. They were demanding it. And this is what happens. And just because Elisha had stood in the breach in the past, nothing is happening now. To this moment, we haven't even heard from Elisha. But the king blames Elisha and says, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. You see, this goes to show that just because you have an Elisha around doesn't mean that you're going to be exempt from God's judgment. There's a very interesting verse in uh, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they could only save themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. And so, the idea that if you just have a holy man around, oh, you're going to be safe. Uh, I remember somebody thinking, when they saw me on the plane, they said, oh, good, this plane will be safe. Look, I think you're stupid if you think that. Uh, I think I mentioned to you some weeks ago that uh, President Lyndon Johnson, during the time of the Vietnam War, wanted Billy Graham to stay at the White House as if this would make a difference. But there are people that have that kind of superstition. Elisha is alive and well, but now he hasn't said anything. And the king is blaming him. So the king swore that Elisha would be beheaded by sundown. Do you know what happened here? He was literally repeating the very thing that Jezebel had done. We're told that Jezebel, by the way, this is what we call Oath language, similar language. Elijah had infuriated Jezebel because of the way he called attention to the prophets of Baal and had them slaughtered. And so Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. That's the, that was the language. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Well, you see, solemn warnings, vows like this, you're supposed to keep. Whenever you make a vow, Old Testament language, you keep it. A promise, you shouldn't break it. But if you make a vow, you keep it. But they didn't. And it didn't seem to bother them at all. Well, Elisha, where was he? Don't you know that Elisha was very much involved in all this? He hasn't said a word up to now. But he's one jump ahead of the king. He knows exactly what the king has said. And we read in verse 31 where Elisha says to his friends, he says, don't you see how this murderer, and the Hebrew reads son of a murderer, because that's what he was, is sending someone to cut off my head? And then he says, look, when the 
equerry comes. Shut the door, hold it shut against him. In fact, I can hear his footsteps right now. And so at that moment, while Elisha was talking to them, the equerry to the king comes and he has a word. And immediately he blames Elisha. He says, the disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And they're going to kill Elisha. As if that's going to bring some kind of vengeance that's going to change things. But this is what people do. In their evil fury. Well, at this point, it is so wonderful and amazing. An extraordinary forecast. Now, when we think of a forecast, I think of weather, don't you? Think of a weather forecast. Uh, weathermen, uh, they forecast. They don't uh, always get it right. They just predict based upon what evidence they have. A friend of mine was in Kansas City, and uh, they went to the local newspaper, I think it's called the Kansas City Star, uh, to the building, and were reading a newspaper 100 years from that day. And they decided to look at the weather. You know what the weather said 100 years ago? It may rain today, and it may not. Hundred years later, with all our technology, uh, do you know they got it wrong today? Yeah. It was supposed to rain and Louise and I would have to take a bus. We walked. I was so glad they got it wrong. I love to walk. I remember some years ago, maybe you remember it, Michael Fish, BBC weatherman. Bless his heart, he has never lived it down. I was here when it happened. He said before he went off the air, oh, by the way, you've heard about a hurricane at sea. Don't worry, not going to come near here. Go out on your picnics, go to the beach tomorrow, have a good time. It was the worst storm in living history. It was awful. I remember the day, next day walking through Green Park. Huge trees falling. No one had ever seen like it, anything like it in London before. He was interviewed a couple days ago, and uh, they're still talking about that. He'll, he'll never live it down. But when God makes a forecast, you can count on it. And Elisha was that kind of person. And so he said to the equerry to the king, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the equerry to the king said, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, how could that happen? And then, Elisha responded, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. Not a very nice way to talk to a man of God, but that's what he said. And he was so sure that what Elisha said was so ridiculous. 
It's like when we make the claim that one day God will clear his name. He's actually going to give us the reason he has allowed evil. Did you know that? Yes, you read it in Habakkuk chapter 2. He's going to give the reason. In fact, because of evil in the world, this is the first reason people give for not being Christians. In our days at Westminster Chapel, for 20 years I was out on the streets giving out tracts. I talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I can tell you, without exception, if you get them to stop and talk, they immediately say, if there were a God, why all the suffering in the world? And they walk on fully satisfied that they have figured it out. If there were a God, He is wise, He is merciful, He is powerful, and He does nothing. That's the way they think. And when you consider the evil that's in the world, look at what is going on. This same country, Syria, is going on right now as we speak. It's horrible. The suffering. Uh, hospitals full, they can't handle the people with the chemical weapons. And, and, and business are closing. And it's horrible. And you think, why would God allow this? And we could go on and on and ask the question, why does God do this? I'm going to tell you something. God is fully aware of all that is going on. And he knows exactly what people are thinking. And so, in all this, in a major crisis, God has a plan. And in this case, he uses Elisha. And Elisha says, hear what the Lord says. Now, I need to pause and say something here. You've heard me say this before, some of you. That you people who believe you have a prophetic gift. And I'm not questioning that. Because God gives some people prophetic gifts. I've told you, I've warned you, I've cautioned you. Don't ever say, the Lord told me. Don't ever say, thus saith the Lord. You say, well, Elisha did. You're not Elisha. This is my reason for years. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to seminary. I said, Spurgeon didn't go to seminary. And then someone gently said, but R.T., you're no Spurgeon. That, that, that hurt a bit, but I needed that. When it comes to speaking like this, even if you are 100% sure that God has given it to you, you don't need to bring his name into it. Jesus said, don't do it. He said, don't swear at all by heaven or earth, by Jerusalem, don't do it at all. Well, then what do we do? I can tell you what to do. Just give the word to somebody and don't tell them it's from God. Just say, this is what I'm feeling for you. You're safe that way. Or here's something I think you ought to pray about. I remember a total stranger came up to me in Scotland uh, 15, 18 years ago. And she just stopped me. She says, I've got a word for you, Dr. Kendall. I didn't know who she was. I haven't seen her since. She said, your heart. Your heart. You need to think about your heart. I said, you mean my physical heart? Yes. 
and she walked away. Turned out a year later, it turned out that I have an aortic valve problem and I had to have open heart surgery. But it gave me pause, so I was more willing to listen to what the doctor said. She didn't say the Lord told her. I think she, she did get it from the Lord. And that's the point. If you give a word and you didn't bring in the Lord, they come back to you and say, that must have been the Lord. That's the way for it to happen. But don't put God's reputation on the line in advance because the Elishas of this world are rare even in the Old Testament. There were just only two of the kind, Elijah and Elisha, and the rest were just ordinary people like you and me. And Elisha could say that. You can't. And if you're wise, you will take my advice. I've given a word like this to some of the best-known prophetic people in America. We had a conference in Dallas some years ago. Seventy-five of the best-known prophetic people met together, and they asked me to speak, and I spoke on this. And you know what? When I finished, you could hear a pin drop, because every single one of them had done nothing but say, the Lord says, the Lord says. I said, stop it! Well, funnily enough, they agreed with me. Whether they changed, I don't know. But I know this, this prophecy of Elisha, so extraordinary when there is so much suffering and so much hunger. And so Elisha gives what appears to be an outlandish prophecy, the promise of prosperity and more than enough food 24 hours from now. And so the king's inquiry says, not possible, not possible. In fact, he says, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heavens. Why did he say that? Well, you, they weren't having any rain. The rain would cause the soil to give crops and fruit. And that would take weeks and months. So that's why he said that. But then Elisha looked at him and said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. He had no more to say. But what Elisha says, there's going to be food, it will be cheap, whereas at the moment, there will be six times as much good food for one-fifth of the price. It would mean abundance of food, and imagine paying 25 pounds for a horse's head and the next day, they have so much food, according to Elisha, that, that everything could be bought by less than a pound. It was outlandish, except that Elisha was a special prophet of God. These people are rare. Whether we have them today is another question. But the equivalent promise that I would say is this. One day, God will clear his name. I remember when I was a student at seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, Kentucky, the major pastor there would never give his name, but he's well known. I could get away with it if I did. Uh, he's dead now, anyway. But he complained before everybody because God did not heal his five-year-old daughter she died. And instead of taking it with grace, like Job, and said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. 
he went public by saying, God has a lot to answer for. And in his bitterness, and seminary students flocked him. And it changed the theology, turned them away from the God of the Bible. You see, be careful. Be careful when you want to accuse God. As Yogi Berra put it, it ain't over till it's over. And the way God will do it. You see, Jesus declared, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And God will have the final word. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. And then the Bible says this. And what is at stake is Holy Scripture. Spurgeon's comment was, defend the Bible. I would as soon defend a lion. And you can be sure that this is a word that you can believe. By the way, I want you to know, Holy Scripture which we sometimes refer to as logos. You know, there are two Greek words translated word. Logos, rhema. The words can be used interchangeably, so you don't want to push the distinction too far. Logos, generally speaking, would be the Bible. Rhema, a word like Elisha gave. Rhema words today are a dime a dozen, and probably few, if any, are really fulfilled. Very rare. But people keep giving them. They keep giving them. But I want you to know, Elisha's rhema word was as infallible as Scripture, and Scripture is as infallible as Elisha's rhema word. But that is a different situation, and we need to respect that. All right, at the moment, it doesn't seem likely. There's no way that this prophecy could be fulfilled. I wonder, is anybody here today? You're waiting on a prophetic word and you say it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And you believe God gave you something and you can't understand why it hasn't come to pass. And you don't see how it can come to pass. Uh, Let me say this. When a prophecy is from God, you won't have to knock a door down to make it happen. And if you've received a word from the Lord and you're still waiting for it, don't try to make it happen. I remember many years ago, I received what I believed then and and I do believe was a vision from God that indicated that I was going to have a ministry that would be international. That was in 1956. I was uh, just 21 years old, and uh, I was a Nazarene. Nazarenes are very parochial, very small denomination. The, uh, the idea that I'd have a ministry to go around the world, it, it didn't make sense at all. And my dear father, godly man, said to me, Son, you have broken with God. I said, No, 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 I haven't. Oh, yes, you have. Prove to me that you haven't broken with God. Well, I was racking my brain. I wanted to say something because it's, it's, it's painful to have your own dad uh, uh, believing that you've become a fraud. That's virtually what he was saying. And I said, well, I, I can tell you that uh, I gave him a word that was given to me by, I think, the Lord. I think in this case it was. I simply said that one day I will have a ministry that will go around the world. He said, When? And that is where I made a mistake. I said, one year from now. 
Well, a year later, I wasn't even in the ministry. I wasn't preaching at all. Now he was convinced he was right. Five years later, I was a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. And my father now completely dismissed me. But in 1978, 22 years later, on a plane, a train rather, from Edinburgh coming into King's Cross, London, I actually heard my dad say, son, you were right and I was wrong. I'm proud of you. But I waited 22 years. And if you really did get a word from God, hang on to that. But be willing to test it and be willing to have got it wrong. Because we've all got it wrong. We've all made mistakes. But I come now to a very important part. The elsewhere factor. This is huge. The elsewhere factor is always operative and often forgotten. That means what God is doing elsewhere in the world. It's so easy for us. We focus on ourselves. We focus on our own nation. Uh, I thought if revival came to the world, it would come to London. If it came to London, it would come to Westminster Chapel. Because I, I thought in those terms. But remember, uh, God cares about London. He also cares about Europe. He cares about Indonesia. He cares about the Philippines. He cares about China. And what he's doing there may affect us. How often do you think of what God is doing elsewhere? You see, what God is doing in other places will eventually relate to our situation here. What he's doing in Alaska, Brazil, Siberia. So we have a parallel situation. God was at work where nobody would have thought. There happened to be four lepers in Samaria. And they, like everybody else, were starving. And they had a little conversation and said, let's escape. And let's go into the, uh, the camp of the Syrians. Well, one said, if you do that, you're going to die. He said, we're going to die anyway. We go there, we die. We stay here, we die. And they said, why do we sit here? That's what they said. Why do we sit here until we die? And so we'll go into the city. The famine is there and we'll die. Let's just die there. Who would have known that God was behind all that because these four Syrians, uh, sorry, these four lepers go into the Syrian camp and guess what they find? It's completely deserted. There's food everywhere. It's like a five-star hotel buffet and there is food and wine and even silver and gold because what had happened, we read in verse 6 of chapter 7, Look, these Syrians are saying, they heard the sounds of chariots and horses and a great army. And they thought that the Egyptians and the Hittites had now backed the king of Israel and they could hear them coming. God did that. Nothing is too hard from God. God caused them to hear a sound of chariots. And they're scared to death. They don't even reach for their clothes. They run. They run for their lives and leave everything in that camp. And here come the lepers. And they could not believe their luck. And they say, this is fun. They're eating like they've never eaten in their lives. 
I guess there was caviar, fillet steaks with pepper sauce, lobster, and they said, this is wonderful. I think they might have had chicken tikka masala. Uh, and then after a while, they said, you know what? This is not right. We're not doing good. We're keeping this to ourselves. We need to tell them back in Samaria what's going on, and they can come and get it. And so they ran, told the king, who at first rejected it, said it's nonsense. But then the king was overruled. Rumors got out, and they went into there, and they found all that food, and as a result, there is a stampede, and virtually everybody in Samaria runs to the Syrian camp, and they trample over everybody. Among them, the equerry to the king, and he's dead. And then they bring in the food. We come now to the last point, exact fulfillment. The equerry to the king is trampled and dies. Food for everyone arrives. There's so much food that the price goes way down. And the prophecy is an exact fulfillment because in verses 18 and 19 that Gabriel just read, as the man of God said, 24 hours from now, a sea of flour will sell for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the officer, that is the equity to the king, said, even if the Lord should open the floods of heaven, how could this happen? And Elisha said, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. And that's exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled on him in the gateway. There was panic. They wanted food. They were hungry, and they just ran and ran over the equerry. Food for everybody arrives. It was restored, and it came from the Syrian camp. And the truth is, Elisha did come through. He had been quiet for a while, then gives this word, and it turns out exactly what happened. So uh, how people quickly turn against God and his prophet, and the most outlandish prophecy was of God. By the way, when you think of the, the uh, lepers that ran into Samaria to give the good news. Eldon Corsi, former minister here. Anybody here remember Eldon Corsi? Anybody here? He's, he's a great man. Do you know from this pulpit what he used to say? Those lepers are an Old Testament example of evangelism where you don't keep to yourself what God has given to you and you want to tell everybody and that's what the lepers did. And by the way, that's our calling. That's why we preach the gospel. Why should I keep to myself what somebody here needs? And I just wonder, is there anyone in this place? You don't know for sure that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven. And I have to tell you, it's my responsibility that out there beyond death, is what we call eternity. It lasts a long time. 
And in eternity, there are two classes of people, saved and lost. It's heaven or hell. You don't need to go there because I've got good news for you. Just as the lepers had wonderful news, food was available. I've got a different kind of food. It's bread from heaven. It's what will give you peace while you wait to die and eternity, a place in heaven. And you can know you're saved. What would you say to God if you stood before him? You will. And he would ask you, he could do, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Think right now. Don't think of somebody else. What would you say? You're standing before God. you got nobody to coach you. Your friends can't help you. Your parents can't help you. Your loved ones can't help you. you you'll stand before God alone. And he says, why should I let you in? And you've got to come up with the right answer, and there's only one. And you give the wrong answer, you have to go someplace. Don't go there. You don't need to go there. So what would you say? What comes to your mind right now? I have to say to you that if what comes to your mind is not because Jesus died for me on the cross, if that does not come to your mind, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything. If it comes to your mind because of the blood of Jesus, you're in good shape. Charles Spurgeon said, if I go to hell, I'll, be, I'll go to hell trusting the blood of Jesus, which, of course, you can't go to hell if you trust the blood of Jesus. That's how much Spurgeon believed it, because that's all we've got going for us. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ of Nazareth totally, perfectly fulfilled the law, and the righteousness of the law, because he kept it, is put to your credit the moment you give up hope in your good works and trust his death on the cross. In that moment, his righteousness is put to your credit. That means that you will go to heaven and not to hell when you die. But it's on the condition that you believe that. I can take you to Victoria Station and I could say, do you believe that train on track six is going to Bournemouth? And it says so. Yeah, I think that train will take you to Bournemouth. But it won't take you to Bournemouth unless you get on the train. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You believe that, but do you believe that Jesus died for you? And are you prepared to transfer all the hope you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you on the cross? In this moment, in this moment, you can pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. Say that to him. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. 